Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I have someone very special with me today, and the way I want to introduce him is by talking about Parsha Yisro. Yisro was a remarkable individual. He was an advisor to Pharaoh, and the thing about Yisro is he was willing to leave the most prominent, prosperous, decadent society, having this top role, this very you know comfortable, I'm sure well-paid position, and when he saw it wasn't truth, he left. And Yisro is someone that always was pursuing truth. Most people go through life just accepting things the way they were taught. They accept whatever religion they were born into, whatever beliefs, habits, things just the way they are. They just go with the flow. They don't stop and question it. Yisro was different. He had something very special about him. And so he left Egypt and he went to Midian. And there he prospered once again. He pursued every type of idolatry possible, but he was pursuing truth. And when he saw that one idol wasn't right, he left it. And he went to another idol. And when he saw that wasn't true, he left that as well. And after the miracles and the ten plagues in Egypt and the splitting of the Red Sea, all the nations knew about it. They heard about it and they were talking about it nonstop. But over time, they stopped talking about it a little less, a little less. The conversation became a little more mundane until they weren't talking about it at all. Yisro was different. When he heard it and he knew this is truth, this is the creator, this is the one that controls everything, he immediately took action. He changed himself and he went out to meet his son-in-law Moshe and daughter Zipporah and united with the Jewish people. And the reason this is such a fitting story is that person sitting across from me right now is to me the modern day Yisrael. So I want to introduce my dear friend, Rod Bryant. How are you? And I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored that you would do this. I've been looking forward to doing this for quite some time. I had the thought in my head over a month ago when I was reading Yisrael. I was like, I got to interview Rod. It's going to be amazing. So I want you to tell your story. If you would, yeah, sounds good. Uh, first of all, you know, it's I've had an affinity toward this great hero of biblical faith. I know a lot of people talk about Abraham and all of the accomplishments. Obviously, is the father of a nation and of nations, but Yitro stands out as a man who pursued truth to its ultimate level. And th- look, there are some people in the world who cannot pursue it. They they don't have the maybe the psychological strength or the endurance to do it. I was raised up Christianity. I know what it was like to go to church three or four times a week. And I came to Houston to college, Bible college. And immediately, because I think it was the way I was raised, critical thinking was not something that was encouraged in Bible school. It's just not encouraged at all. So I came in like thinking, how could this be true? Some of the things they would say. And you would ask a question, and then they would give some sort of roundabout explanation, quoting tons of verses. And then when you go confirm the verses, you go, this still doesn't add up. I continue to do that. I went to seminary because my goal was to get my master's divinity and then go to uh, military to be a, a chaplain. And during that period, I figured I'm going to learn everything I need to learn about the Bible in seminary, and that is actually not the truth. Seminary equivalent of 
seminary level, master's level, Old Testament studies, as they would call it in Christianity, what we'd call Tanakh studies, is who wrote it, when, where, and how, and about the time period. That was just about it. it they didn't get into you know critical textual. They couldn't. And obviously now I know why they couldn't do that, because if you go and get into the text, it would completely transform your thinking about your own religion, about what you do believe. And so that carried on. I came to Houston, went to work for the Houston Police Department. I decided I'm out. I'm not going to be involved with this anymore. Judaism was nowhere in my repertoire of thinking, okay, nowhere. I started a small Bible study in my house with my kids and a couple of neighbors. And just out of the purpose of I've got to have some kind of constructive process for my children to learn. And within about, I don't know, three months, we're running 25, 30 people in my living room in Huffman, Texas. So I said, well, let's move out of that, go to a hotel. And it went from a hotel to another building, eventually within six years, grown to almost 600 people. And at that point, I really was dragging a burden because you got to remember, the truth seeker hadn't disappeared. And the success in, quote, Christian ministry had not disappeared tampered that at all if anything now it was more because i'm saying i'm responsible for these people like i decided and i told the congregation we're going to do a year's worth of church history and we're going to start from postmodern era and go all the way back to the very original what is the most authentic is what i want to be and they're like oh yay they're all, all great and we do that and we uncovered the good bad and the ugly and there's a lot of all of that we get back to the Roman Catholic Church and how it was started, and then finding out that the only archaeology of anything with Christians is the Byzantine era, which totally blows this whole idea that they existed in the second century or first century. The Byzantine area is, is around uh, 280, somewhere around there. So many years after that. And then when we find out from uh, you know uh, factual intellectuals, who one I know very well is Roman Catholic, and he says, no, Roman Catholic Church is universal church. This is what and Constantine wanted was to pull all the religions into one. So whether you worship the deity Helen or whatever, if you worship Mithra, if you're Christian, we're going to put them all together and make them all dovetail. A little bit of Jewish, a little bit of everything. And once I found that out, it wrecked my world. Because then I realized there's nothing authentic in Christianity that brings us back to the ancient scriptures. So... I began to – I took a Hebrew course from Hebrew University, started reading, and my whole world crumbled. Now, remember, all of my budget, all of my finances, all of my – everything I got from being a pastor and making significantly good money for a congregation that size. I was starting to see that it, to where the scales completely fell off my eyes, and it was – I spent two weeks in Hawaii – and my son was had a military operation or whatever, and, and so he said, hey, would you mind sit, sitting the dog for me? He had a Sheltie. I said, great. I'm going to use that opportunity to take all of Rabbi Tovia Singer's material and disprove him. So this is what I decided to do is to get all of Rabbi Tovia Singer's works and study him and prove him wrong because I was right at that point where I was ready to jump in the pool. It was like either he's completely right and I am completely wrong or – He's completely wrong. I'm completely right. You can't dovetail Christianity and Judaism together. They just don't work. So you've seen his videos before. Oh, yeah. I'd watched him plenty of videos before. And you were, But you were approaching it from? Critical thinking. He wasn't going to sell me because he sounded like – it was sounded like a good apologetic argument. I wanted 
set, I want it, uh, facts. Just give me the facts. That's what I want. And bottom line, Christianity depends on an individual's religious experience or emotional experience to validate their truth. You know, their truth is validated by their experience. Well, I felt good. I felt joy. I felt happy. They All of these antidotal evidence that their religion is right is not based on any facts. And so they are their own test audience, right? They're, so when you talk about facts, most Christians will go, you'll show them something very factual. And they'll go, well, but I just know what JC did for me. How can I beat that? Can't do it. But it was Rabbi Singer's teaching. Spent two weeks. I went to the beach one time, spent the rest in the house and reading this material, writing notes, finally called two of my staff pastors and said, oh, boy, we have some talking to do. It went downhill from there. I mean, downhill. It took it still took about that was 2009, eight. So it took eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 before I left. So I've always wondered how the written Torah by itself doesn't make a lot of sense. You have to go to the oral Torah. And so the oral Torah is where everything that— It fills in the blanks. It fills in the blanks, but it also discounts everything Christianity teaches. Absolutely. Yet they took the New Testament, they plugged it in to the quote-unquote Old Testament. Right. So how when – when you were studying quote-unquote the Old Testament, how, how does a Christian even make sense of it? Well, they don't. What they end up doing is because it doesn't make sense, they say this must be some mystical, allegorical thing that points us to J.C. Just about everywhere. I mean, they see, they see J.C. all through the Tanakh. And that's what they do is they'll make something an allegory. And they don't say it what didn't happen, but it becomes the reason why it's written was to point down the road to their religion. That's the whole concept. With that being said – People will believe something and said and told we shouldn't challenge it because if we do, our faith is being challenged. Right. But see, in Judaism, our faith isn't our religion. Our faith is our relationship and connection to the Creator. We have a totally different definition of faith. Totally different definition of faith. The idea of just believing in God without evidence to us, we're forbidden to do that. Correct. The Talmud says you're not allowed to do that. And it is Hashem himself who says, no, know that I'm God, not feel that I'm God think that I'm God. That was the other thing is slowly I began pulling back the covers and seeing that there is a a completely different psychological, ethical, moral construct than Christianity had. Even though we have goodness and people in charity and all the plenty of fantastic Christians, I realized that here you have God not saying have faith in me, but know me. Because how can I have faith in something I don't know? Because faith in Judaism is not believing something you don't know. Or believe in something you don't agree with, but God forbid that we would ever believe something we don't we don't believe or hasn't been proven to us because we know how those arguments work. I've even told people that attend our, our community, we're not here to uh, hear anybody's opinions about anything. We only want to know what Hashem and the sages of blessed memory say. That's what we're interested in. And see, that's the clarity that I never had as a Christian pastor, never had that opportunity because how do you go back and make that kind of a statement when you have commentators from every denomination saying that completely opposite thing from each other? You have the, the New Testament completely contradicts things that are found in the Tanakh. And when you see that their Bibles have somewhere around 40,000 different variances, 40,000. Could you imagine if we had two variances in the Torah, what that would cause a problem in? It'd be difficult. It'd be a huge problem. So this whole 
adventure, as I say, was a journey to not only completely knowing Hashem as He reveals Himself, because that's it's another concept that's different. Christianity says, I need to accept somebody to save me. In Judaism, it says, I need to know God so I can know what to do to have salvation and to have life. And it's clearly God gives us a choice, choose life or death. What do you want? And you get to choose it. And Hashem walks with us no matter what you choose. But my encouragement to somebody that's listening to this, whether you're Jewish and thinking about returning or you're non-Jewish, because plenty of non-Jews listen to these podcasts, carefully consider the value of truth in your life. And when I have people say, all I want to know is to know the truth, I warn them because truth comes with immense responsibility. You can't say that and then ignore what Hashem says. You can't say it without being a miserable person. And I've known people that have went from Christianity to agnostic or atheism because they were not ready to accept what the truth said. They would almost rather discount it all than to accept that. It's unfortunate. And I am very empathetic growing up a very secular Jew. Discovering Torah was actually true at the age of 40. When I finally realized I had to acquiesce to the countless numbers of logical arguments for the truth of Torah, I was eating my breakfast, which was a plate of bacon, and I realized bacon goes. It's very challenging. So, right. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast. It's really geared towards Baltashuvas, B'nai Noachs, because I think now more than ever, people want to know Absolutely. the truth. Absolutely. And we're so close to the final redemption. So close. I'm so excited about it. And I know that somebody listening to this and not might not be particularly religious might discount it as fanaticism. But too many things have happened in this country and the world that I have seen personally with my own eyes, once again, completely theoretical based on my opinion, which doesn't mean anything. But the whole point is is I'm seeing firsthand how many people are coming out of Christianity to embrace toward Judaism for the non Jew. It's a huge number, and that's why now in Israel, some of the rabbis that sort of been knowing about this are now going, oh, goodness, we got to put some order to this. Like we have to figure out how do we start an organization that puts order to all this. We can't have these people all over the world accepting upon themselves Torah without giving them some instruction. It's a big thing right now. It had gotten to the point I went and visited my rabbi in Israel, Rabbi Abraham ben Yankov. And uh, spent two weeks there in the Haredi community. It was a beautiful experience, right? And going to Davin, it just it was incredible. And I got home. When I got home, it was like, I'm pulling the plug on this. Like, I can't do it. So I, I announced the staff. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to retire. All of you know that I've been on a journey. And by then, I'd already changed my eating habits. And my beard had been growing out for four years. And I realized, look, these people didn't sign up to see a pastor become an Orthodox Jew. It wasn't fair to them. I mean, honestly. And look, I look back on it, and I, I feel bad that it happened the way it did because there were a lot of very good people who showed my wife and I a tremendous amount of love and respect that we we didn't even get an opportunity to make a final goodbye. It was it was that drastic. Okay, I'll explain to you. I call it the left foot of fellowship instead of the right hand of fellowship. So what happened? I, I decided to retire. Announced the pastors. I said, look, this is what's going to happen. You're going to take senior position as as a pastor. You're going to take admin pastor's position. But they were like, oh, we agree with it. It's a great idea. I think it's best for it. Yes. How, how big was the church? If you had that many, about six hundred. We had thirteen 
staff members and five pastors. So it was it wasn't tiny. Fifty four acre campus in Kingwood off of North Park and six million dollars worth of assets and one point five in the bank. Like it I was leaving them quite well. I go to the board and the board we have a big dinner, wine together and everybody on the board said, you know, this is this is good for you. I think it's good. I, we agree with that. We'll get with you on your retirement package. I said, great. So the next morning, one of the other board members come up to me and said, hey, we were just talking after you left, and we decided you can go ahead and retire, and then we'll get with you later. I went, no, that's not how it's going to work. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Then the vice president of the board took me out to lunch and said, look, go ahead and resign. I'll make sure it gets taken care of. I said, so you're an executive member of your own energy business. And let's say that you wanted to retire. And they say, go ahead and retire. We'll catch up with you later on. I said, what would you do? And he just stared straight. I said, I didn't think so. It's not going to happen. So that upset him because here he's got plenty of money, could probably buy me. Plenty of money. And he ended up hiring a big-time attorney in Dallas, nonprofit attorney. And they brought him down, and he went through all the records trying to find something, maybe a misappropriation of funds or a slipped up buying stuff personal from my credit card. You name it. They tried everything. They spent about $10,000 on this. And finally, they called me in. They sent me a final contract. I said, it's great. I go into the board meeting, and basically they slid a piece of paper over and said, read this. And basically it said, as a – According to this particular bylaw in the Constitution, bylaws and Constitution, you are now no longer the head of the board as the president of the board. Now, I didn't, it was a loophole I didn't know was in there. So if they take me off as president, by default, I'm no longer the pastor. And so I said, You guys can't do that. I mean, you realize how wrong this is? He goes, No, you have to deal with it. I said, Whatever happened to due process, for example, they were supposed to send a letter out to five anonymous pastors who didn't have any relationship with me, to set on a council to judge whether they should they could do that. They bypassed the whole thing. I finally asked around the table, so personally, what did I do to deserve this? Two of them were silent. One got up and walked out of the room. One guy says, well, you haven't updated the website lately. And so the other guy who was a little peeved at me, the executive, said, I want to know what is the name of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And I said, well, I can't really say his name, but it's it's the sacred name of God, yud Kevavke. And he slammed his hand down on the desk. He goes, no, it's not. It's JC. And I just stood up because I, I knew uh, the fight's over, right? Yeah. There's no way getting past this. I got up, walked out. They locked the door behind me, called the deputy and made sure I wouldn't come get my stuff. They kept my stuff in my office without being able to pick it up for a while. Then they put it on the curb. There were about uh, maybe five people that were not part of the church that was coming to my Wednesday night Parsha study. And there were three or four people from the congregation that were in that. But by then, I was already like a heretic. People had already figured that out. And we went to Homewood Suites and started a meeting there. Rabbi Greenbaum, I think, came in. Rabbi Yaakov came in like pretty soon after that to kind of give us encouragement. We had about 10 and the community has grown. We've moved into this building and we'll average on high holy days, you know, 75 or so. And we, we have online teaching. The people that are here are, would, they would consider themselves, if this makes sense, a from Noahide and meaning that they carry levels of integrity and holiness to a place that's not expected of them. They dress modestly. They 
in most well all the cases would never eat like seafood and shrimp and bacon they just don't do it not because they feel obligated because they want to feel they want to be enjoined with their brothers in the jewish world you understand they want to be part of the family so when did you sort of understand this idea of b'nai noach when i when i left i had no idea what a b'nai noach was just when someone if someone had said noahide i would have thought something you cover furniture with i'm serious what's a noahide so I had the guy in Dallas uh, called me and said, hey, I'm coming through Houston. Let's talk. He's from the Noahide community. And it was sort of a, sort of a split off from Vindal Jones, one of the first big Noahide guys from 20 years ago. His wife still lives up in Waco area or West Texas. But Vindal was a very, I would call it a, a 20th century Noahide to the hilt. He helped to sort of get it started, but it never really went too well. But the story behind this guy, for example, when he was living in Israel during the Six-Day War, his colorblindness was such a way that he could spot the enemy's camouflage. So he would tell them where the enemies looked. They'd fly on a plane, and he wasn't even in the military, right? He he was a Noahide living in Israel, a Ger Toshav, I guess what you'd call him, in the land of Israel. But – the last thing that I ever knew about him is they held a conference in Dallas and back in 2010 or something like that. He said, hey, let me tell you about the Noahidism. I'm like, yeah, I don't want a thing. I'm, I'm tired of isms. I don't want an ism, right? I just, I just extricated myself from the worst experience in my life. It felt like I had been in a bad marriage so long that I was psychologically just beat down. And I, I just needed to be spiritually revived. So getting in another ism was not exciting. But my intention was to convert. So my intention was as soon as I left, I'd already been in contact with Rob Wobey and Rob Winder. So we'd already started this discussion. And so it's going to be a matter of moving downtown. Well, by the time uh, five months went by, we were already holding 30, 35 people. And like, now what am I going to do? I'm going to abandon them to go downtown. And a lot of them were like, so, so you're going to move? How are we going to do class? They was almost feeling jaded because now I'm going to pack up and leave them. I didn't, obviously. I'm still here. But the community's grown, and I, I was not comfortable with being called a Noahide because I just – I don't like titles. I don't know what it is. You understand? It's the same thing in the world of Judaism, you know, Reformed, Conservative, Orthodox, you know, Neo-Orthodox. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't like any of those titles. I don't like them either. I like just a list of responsibilities. One has 613, one has seven right. plus. And I wasn't comfortable with it, and I told uh, Ray Patterson, is the guy from Noah Hyde, that I really wasn't comfortable, and I'll talk to him about it later on. Still plan on converting, and I ended up getting a speaking engagement first at Rabbi uh, Jacobian's Tor Vachesed, and I was supposed to speak there about B'nai Noach and what did it mean. And so as I began to explain it to him, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is pretty big. Think about it. A guy who was a pastor three years ago is now speaking in a shul about the pious of the nations and the Jews' responsibility to be in priest to the nations. I told everyone their responsibility, the Cohen are supposed to be your priest. You are supposed to be my priest. That's huge. So it took me a few years to realize I felt my need to convert was simply because I wanted to punch the card. Just want to punch the card and say, I've done it. I've, I've arrived. But what brought me through this is when I was speaking, I spoke in, uh, at a shul in Queens. 
And so this guy wanted me to meet this very special chacham in the neighborhood, right? Everybody respects him. Older guy. Visited. was very uncomfortable because I didn't know the guy. And he um, asked a few questions. What are you? I said, I'm Noah High, ba ba ba. I've accepted Sheva Mitzvot. And um, he said, it's really good. He says, what about, what do you do? I told him about the center. And he stood up. I'm like, oh, okay, it's over. And he come around and give me a huge hug. But it was one of those hugs where you're off balance. And because I wasn't prepared for that. Right. And he pulled me in tight and he held on for a long, uncomfortable time. Like, like, what's going on? Then he kissed me on the cheeks, both cheeks, and says, will you give me a bracha? And I went, Rabbi, please. You understand? It's, yeah. I, it's so humbling. I didn't even know how to explain it. So he said, no, 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 no. You need to do this. As much for you as it is for me. Okay. So I do it. Then after he gives me a bracha and he walks me to the porch and I go to live and he gives me another big hug, another big kiss. He says, are you familiar with Hashem planting divine sparks in the nations and they're being gathered in the time of the nations? I said, yes, sir. He goes, you're one of those. He said, quit trying to be something other than what you are. And I didn't take his rejection. I took it as full acceptance from a very wise rabbi in in New York and Queens to say, be comfortable with who you are. So people who are listening may not even know some of these terms, like what is B'nai Noah? First of all, the descendants of Noah is every human being. The, the Jewish people are our brothers, our elder brothers, and they were given the responsibility to be priests to the nations. I mentioned that already. Noah, when he came in, he had a son by the name of Shem. Shem took on the oral Torah that Noah knew going all the way back to Adam. And it was Shem who was called Malik that lived in what is now known as the holy city of Jerusalem. And he was a king priest, Malik It is he that Abraham went to and studied to understand the full concepts of the laws that were passed down from Adam. And it is then at that point where God says to Avraham, you've done all of my Torahs. It's like, that's incredible concept. Wait, wait, Sinai didn't take place yet. What did he have? So he had this amazing oral Torah. And then we understand that Yaakov, after the him presenting the sacrifice, his son on the altar, he leaves Isaac. I'm sorry. Did I say Yaakov? I said Isaac. Isaac goes and visits his, his stepbrother and stepmother and then goes to Shem and spends a huge amount of time studying there as well. All of them, everybody lived by that divine code. And that common law is seven laws that are found within the Torah. People that are considered by the normative Jewish world, there are two concepts that are floated out. One is that every human being is a B'nai Noach, and technically that's the truth. But what's happened in the postmodern era is those who leave paganism and separate themselves from shituf, that is, other types of practices that replace God. Once they leave that, to be called B'nai Noach is being like being called a goy to some because they feel like, no, I'm not part of the nations anymore. I'm like Yitro. I'm like, yes, I'm from the nations, but I'm with the people of Israel. You understand the, yes. the, the, the struggle they have in their mind. Yeah. But technically, every human being that lives has to follow the seven laws that was given to Noah. And those seven laws are connected, rooted, and probably, well, actually, I would say rooted in 613. Let me explain to you why. If I were to go and understand 
for example, I've made this argument before with rabbi says, well, you only need to study the seven. And I said, for example, if I'm told to, to stay away from sexual immorality, how would I know what that means? If I don't know, especially gonna... if, if you watch TV, right. you, you'll have no idea. You have no idea. You have to hear Hashem say, this cannot be done with this. You can't do this. I mean, you have to know. So all of the the pursuit of learning and study, even though the average person in the nations are not required by Hashem to study the Torah, just not required. And that's why so many wonderful people in the world have no idea they're B'nai Noah. They have no clue. They believe in one God. They don't practice sexual morality. They they don't uh, torture animals and take off their limbs and eat them. I mean, they're good people. And they're going to be so surprised when Mashiach comes and he's going to tell them who they are. It's going to shock some people. And also, look, for my Christian friends, uh, no way am I condemning them for not knowing what I know. You're only going to be responsible for what you know. Exactly. There's an idea in Judaism that some Jews are considered like captive children. If a child is taken captive by a non-Jew and brought up in that environment, they're not judged as someone who knows. So we know many people today where they were like captive children. They don't know. And And I would also say to the non-Jew who feels this spark to want to study Torah, they're probably captive child. They don't know and they're struggling now. Well, I can't convert because I've got children. You know, my wife. You just name it, and it's all. That's all right. Right. They don't. We have this idea of, of labels, right. and it makes us feel a sense of belonging. You know, my wife was. She was not Jewish, and when we got married, and I was not religious, and when we got married, she forgot to include in the prospectus that she was a truth seeker. She was looking for spirituality, and then starts asking me about Judaism. And she takes me to a basic Judaism class and ends up going through a conversion when I intentionally did not want to marry a Jew. Which is funny because you marry a woman who's not Jewish who brings you back home. Oh, totally. So, which is beautiful. However, what we learned as we progressed in our studies, we realized that what her conversion was actually to at that particular synagogue where they taught that Torah wasn't actually true. They didn't teach about the 613 mitzvot, that what she actually converted to was a B'nai Noach. Because when she was asking about, when we were learning about all the mitzvot, I was like, well, I'm bound to this. I can't turn all light switches on Shabbos. But she was like, I didn't even know about this when I converted. They, I feel cheated. They didn't disclose this. I was like, then if that wasn't in the contractual arrangement you made, then you're not responsible. I think there's an idea, too, like, well, if I don't have a label, then I'm not included and loved by a group of people, which is not true. Now she's, we are moving forward in that process. She wants to convert, and so is my daughter, and actually take on the 613, but it's not a sense of, it's, again, it's just taking on different responsibilities, taking on a different role. And I see it like if you look at any type of business organization, the CEO of the company, he created the company. It was his ideas. You sort of think about as Hashem and his Torah. But even he knows the organization wouldn't exist if we didn't have me on sales and marketing. We didn't have the traders. We didn't have the personal compliance. Everyone is needed to make this organization run. One person's not bearing the other. And that's the same way I see the B'nai Mitzvah versus the B'nai Noah. Absolutely. And you're 100% right. And so with that, with that being said, coming to full uh, reality of who you are, and I said this and I say it t- today a lot. Don't be you Jewish, be Jewish. Be who you are. I love it. Be who Hashem made you to be. And look, we talked before we did the podcast. Would I want to convert? 
if I had that opportunity right now? Yes. But at the same time, now I'm wondering if it was meant to be, Hashem would have already given me that opportunity. You see what I'm saying? And so there's that other part that says, well, I still have a responsibility to my service to Hashem and what I'm doing as a community. Nobody is doing this. Nobody is doing what we're doing here. And this is with rabbinical oversight, rabbis teaching each, each, uh, every other week here. So these people here have left Christianity. We have had eight people, I think, convert. And we have two more in the shoot right now. Uh, the Balichuva that have been connected uh, with you guys. I, with all of that being said, we have this huge obligation. And I realize that Jews don't proselytize, but this is not – I hope that Jews don't confuse not proselytizing by not telling anybody the truth because they need to know. They need to know. No, it, it, exactly. And talking to people about God and God being one right. and why he created us is not proselytizing. Uh, Right, I'm going to tell I'm going to tell the audience what what Rabbi Yakobian and the based in would say. If you come cold to me or especially them and say, "Hey, I just left Christianity a year ago or six months ago, and I want to convert," they'd go, well, "Why don't you go be a part of the thief for at least a year or two, and we'll visit that again?" Because most people are only doing it because they want a community. They want a community, and they don't, and they unhappy with the church. Matter of fact, at several times at the Sunday class around the corner here at that synagogue, I've had people come in and say they wanted to convert, and I've actually have pushed them, directed them over to you as well. My thing is I don't want to make people Nativites or Noahites or Noahides. It's not my, my goal. My goal is put the information out there so that a person can make a, a logical, intellectual decision to know God and to also strip the shackles of false religion. It's such a burden. And especially now we have the Torah and we have the great writings of the sages and we have the 13 principles of faith and you have Lakuti Maharan. You have all these wonderful books of wisdom and we're walking around broken because we just don't know. And that's why I think that redemption is going to be so sweet to so many people. There are going to be people who've struggled their entire life with the mess that their lives have created and not realizing it was right there in front of them the whole time. And we have a merciful God who, if they're not Jewish, or based on what they know, that they'll be judged. You know, there was Perkeo vote we studied not too long ago, and what I, I loved about it was, I can't remember which one it was, but the, the message was that you know, no one knows exactly where they would have ended up. Like a great sage would never know where they would end up if they had been born into someone else's situation. Absolutely no idea. So that's why even you know Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm not worthy because if someone else had been put in my situation, with all the, they would have done way better than me. So you never know. You may see this pious rabbi who has lived a totally observant lifestyle, knows vast knowledge of Torah, perfect midot, and you may see someone that might look like somewhat of a loser without a job and, and is very ignorant, but the path that person – traveled may have been way greater the see that is a philosophical theological thing that other religions just don't have that i know of especially christianity have that built in and where the creator he a great rabbi like you said perfect in every way who may experience some level of shame and soul correction because there were things that could have been very easy for him to do that he didn't do as well as the guy who is the quote maybe ignorant 
guy, homeless guy. He has struggled so much with drug addiction, mental health problems, but yet he manages to give charity. <laughs> That's huge. And Hashem gives him great credit for that. It's just, it's just right. Yeah, the Talmud talks about the someone who was born who was a thief his entire life. His father was a thief. He burrows into a home. He sees the money, but he sees someone's there and realizes that moment, if I'm going to get that money, this is probably the biggest heist of my life, I'm going to have to harm that person. That's his piece of free will, and he says no. So even though he goes back to thievery, that moment, that, that free will choice for him was huge. Like for us, we wouldn't. It's like no credit to me that I go to a shim in the divine court and go, well, I never murdered anybody. You right. didn't have it in you. Right. <laughs> you were right. never raised like right. that. You know, it's like Rabbi uh, Ari Wolby talks about he doesn't get credit for never eating a bacon cheeseburger because right. right. he's never been exposed to exactly. it. So if you, if you, when you say that, what, what would I say to people that are listening that first are not Jewish, that are pursuing truth, and they're listening to your podcast, they're listening to all these podcasts, what is the most important thing for them to be doing right now? I would say don't obsess about what you should do. Do what you're supposed to do now. Just perfect what you're supposed to do now, what Hashem has expected you to do. If you're non-Jew, the Sheva vote, obviously. Character development, developing your character, working out the levels of charity that you give for the reason, for the sake of your own community. And don't worry about, should I convert? Should I not convert? Do I tr- find a local Jewish community to accept me? When all those things are supposed to happen, they will happen at the right time. It just happened at the right time. Other than that, study Torah. Can you uh, state your, your website and, and what you do here and the, the, the online teaching you do? So if someone wanted to find and search that out, they could? Uh, the website is Nativ.net. It's N-E-T-I-V.net. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. It's called Nativ Online. It's just one word. All of our lectures are on that. The guest rabbis are there. What Nativ has started doing is teaching practical Torah values to the non-Jewish world. We avoid specific halakhic studies because they don't really apply. However, if we come across verses within the Parsha, that relates to a halakha, we'll say, well, this is where this halakha come from. You know, it's, it's a general education to say, oh, well, that's why they don't do this, or that's why they, the Jews do that. We also work very hard in the study of the Parsha to connect the Sheva Mitzvot within the context of that. It's not always about that. But for example, laws of Nida, which is purity for a woman, doesn't have any, any application to a non-Jewish woman. But at the same time, there are concepts of purity that are ethereal ideas that we should understand that if we're going to approach Hashem, then psychologically they could work on purities of their mind, purities of their action. And these are huge, valuable lessons. It has nothing to do with them needing to go to a mikvah. Yeah, the idea is separation. Separation. That's just great marital advice. Absolutely. The you said something a while ago, and I wanted to throw this in. When you talked about uh, obligations, and you mentioned the CEO of a company, et cetera, et cetera, I try to explain this to individuals here that, for example, I was in the military, and if you came into the military as an officer, your obligations are completely different than the enlisted guy, even the, though you both carry the same responsibilities as a common soldier. Your responsibilities are different than other the, the enlisted guys. And the enlisted guy says uh, responsibilities that the officer doesn't have. 
And it's it's about distinction. And so when I understood, wow, for the first time, this has been two years ago, that when Hashem says, be holy as I am holy, I'm thinking, how is that possible? Like, how is that possible to be holy? As he, he's, his holiness is at such a level that that word is, in, is, is not very explanatory. But then I realized, hold on a second. God is distinct. He's distinct. There is no other God. He is so distinct that nothing can contribute to him or take away from him. And if he's distinct, and now we know that his people are a chosen nation, distinct, then even within the nation are distinct individuals, the Kohanim, the Levites, the people. There are distinctions. Even the tribes had their own distinctions. And so with that being said, the B'nai Noach can stand in distinction away from the rest of the nations because they have not, they've become cognizant of God, they've become cognizant of the law, and they live by that. And that makes them distinct. So they are just as holy as a Kohen. They don't have the same responsibilities. And that's the beautiful thing. When we find out when Hashem calls us and we stand before court, if you've lived up to your fullest potential of who you are, then you've done your job, or at least tried. And this is another thing about Judaism I like. I even get credit if I try and if I can't make it. That's huge. You can even pray for the desire to pursue a path. There's not a lot we have to do. All he's wanting to do is, is give us pleasure. He's just trying to give us that opportunity to feel like we're worthy of it. Absolutely. One last thing is the Jewish community in Houston is a very unique group. I'm not sure if it's a Southern thing, you know, but they're just good quality people within the Jewish community. And I realize not every community is perfect, but the the base den here and the rabbis here have thrown open their arms to this community. And for them, for example— in December, actually it was on January 1st, I think, we s- stood before based in and we declared ourselves as being rejecting Shituf and idolatry. And that as that document that we have really makes those group of people kosher in the jo- Jewish community because they understand we know what we are supposed to do. Right. Does that make sense? And it doesn't mean that I can go to Crown Heights and just insert myself there without having to do it again there. You have to have a local based in every time you go to a place. But these people felt for the first time like, wow, I'm a part of the people. Even though we have distinctions that are different, I'm part of the people. And my prayer is that the people that you reach that are Jewish, it's time to step up. Because I don't like to say this because we know the truth of the matter. Hashem needs you. All right, We can't contribute in everything, but you understand he doesn't give things without us at least pushing the buggy. Every great miraculous thing that happened in the scriptures— from Sinai to the Shekinah of Hashem in the temple, all started with their hands, all started with their feet. All the world is dependent on the Jewish people getting their act together. God willing, soon and very soon. Rod, I, again, I appreciate you being here and wish you continued prosperity and, and good health for you and your family and growth and, and continued success in what you're doing here for everyone that comes in these doors. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.